0: Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to The Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the APA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. This is Fabiani Duarte.
2: And I'm Madison Burke.
1: And we're the hosts for today's show, which is being presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads. From finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job, We hope this show is a trusted resource for you and our listeners.
2: Today's topic is public service loan forgiveness, a topic familiar to many law students and graduate students alike.
1: One of the most common ways to get student loan forgiveness is to qualify for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. The PSLF program is intended to encourage students from many fields to enter full-time public service jobs after they graduate.
2: As many of you may have read, in April 2015, Forbes published an article by Robert Barrington stating that since many of these public sector jobs have lower salaries than other careers, the PSLF program is designed to strike a balance between the cost of education and the post-graduation salary offered by many public sector employers.
1: Under this program, borrowers may qualify for forgiveness of the remaining balance of their direct student loans after they have made 120 qualifying payments of those loans, while employed full-time by certain public service employers. This could amount to consistent monthly payments over just 10 years instead of 25, with the remainder of the interest and principal written off. Critics of the program, however, state that this puts all taxpayers, rather than the borrower, on the hook.
2: In addition, critics of PSLF state that public employment already offers a combination of job security and retirement benefits that are actually the envy of those in the private economy. Many public service employers qualify for PSLF, including federal, state, or even local government and 501c3 not-for-profit corporations. These careers can include anything from government administration, military service, or even public safety law enforcement and fire departments. Even library services qualify for these programs.
1: That's right. And other sectors include early childhood education services, assisting those with disabilities and the elderly, and public interest law practice areas like working at a district attorney's office or serving as a public defender.
2: Speaking of Public Defenders, our first guest joining us today is Brian Tyson, Executive Director of the Georgia Public Defender Council, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Brian, it's so great to have you on our show, and thank you for making time for this interview. Uh, Before we jump into this really interesting topic of of public service loan forgiveness, let's uh, learn a little bit more about you first. So uh, tell us a little bit uh, about your legal career. Why did you go to law school and how did you end up where you are?
3: Sure. I'm one of those people who has always wanted to be a lawyer. My parents handed me a torts case book when I was in high school and I thought it was the most fascinating book I ever read. <laughs> so I decided after that I better, I should probably be a lawyer. So went to law school working working in politics for several years and then uh, practiced law here in the Atlanta area for about nine years in a civil practice. I worked primarily with redistricting, election law, voting rights litigation, um, and a number of other areas in state and federal court, including a lot of appellate work, and then came to the Public Defender Council in April of this year.
2: All right. Well, when you were at law school, Brian, what would you have said were the biggest crises facing you and your fellow law students?
3: When I was in law school, I'd say the biggest crisis, well, the biggest crisis I faced personally was just the time to study. I was one of those people who um, went to law school while I was working full-time. So trying to manage the ability to study along with the work that I was doing along the way was a challenge. But I know it was a constant conversation for me and other students in my law school and other people in the space about the amount of debt that people were taking on, because even people who were working full-time, the tuition was significant that they had to pay.
2: Yes. so would you say that that has gotten worse since your time in law school, or have you noticed any trend in that regard when you're working in public service law?
3: Absolutely. I'd say it's gotten a lot worse, and we did a survey actually of our public defenders recently, and among our assistant public defenders across the state, um, of those responses, 81% of our lawyers across the state are carrying student loan debt. 60% of them owe more than $75,000 in student loans. Uh, 25% of the mode, more than $175,000. So the issue of being able to manage a public service type job along with a very heavy debt load is a, is a big stressor for a lot of our lawyers.
1: Brian, do you know how many of your uh, teammates there in, in the public defender core relied on PSLF, uh, the public service loan forgiveness program?
3: I don't know an exact number, but we have had a significant number of people tell us that they are enrolled in the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. They're waiting for that 2017 date to come around for a number of them to get to that 10-year mark, but there are a significant number of our folks that are, that are plugged into that program already.
2: Yeah, so this is actually one of the biggest concerns that we've heard from law students and that I'm sure young practicing attorneys are sharing is the fear that if the Senate cuts public service loan forgiveness, that these attorneys and now graduate or soon to be graduates who depended upon PSLF for their career plans to go into, say, public defending are going to kind of have the carpet pulled out from under them. Have you uh, heard that concern expressed by your colleagues?
3: Yes, there's definitely a concern there. And you know, one one of the things about that's so important about public service loan forgiveness is we don't want debt to be an impediment to someone who wants to serve, especially in a role as critical as a public defender or a district attorney or other members of the, of the ju- justice system that are designed to serve the interest of everyone as a whole. And so because there's this opportunity to serve and people make plans about, I'm going to, build my practice around this understanding I can get loan forgiveness one day, losing that would be a significant detriment for our ability to recruit lawyers and for our existing lawyers that are already working in the system.
1: Well, and you know, that's something that, as Madison said, is of great concern to students because it's uh, facing Congress right now. We know that the House has already voted to um, eliminate or significantly reduce uh, the public service loan forgiveness program. The White House has also proposed two budgets to do the same. Uh, and so, as, as Madison mentioned, the, the Senate is uh, where this next showdown is, is going to occur uh, in the passage of the next version of the education bill. If, if you could talk to um, one of our Georgia senators, uh, what would you say uh, to them to, to save uh, public service loan forgiveness?
3: I would tell them, I think, that one of the most important things we can do as a society is we want people serving. We want people to be um, contributing to the community as a whole. And I know there are a number of federal programs already that incentivize getting, for example, medical services to rural areas or for areas where people are not as likely to naturally go into, not as lucrative a profession. And so having something, at least public service loan forgiveness, gives us something that we can offer to lawyers who want to come and serve and come make a better, better their communities. It gives us an opportunity really to get there and give the offer them something because public defenders, district attorneys, I mean, anybody who's in a a public sector type employment generally is not going to be making the salary they could be making in a, in the private sector. But it gives the opportunity to say, hey, let's get people to rural areas, for example, where we have trouble recruiting lawyers and keeping lawyers there or getting people to provide the services that we're able to provide as public defenders to individuals across the state.
2: Yes. So, One trend that I've seen with my own law student colleagues is that due to this rising cost of attending law school and the debt burden that we're carrying, many students who know that they want to go into public service um, as a prosecutor or public defender or working for the government choose actually to go into private practice first for a few years in order to make the bigger paycheck and pay down that debt before they transfer over into public sector. So, I don't know if you've seen that yourself. I, I think it's a pretty common practice nowadays. Are oh, there absolutely. any pros or cons to following that path versus going straight into the public service legal practice?
3: Well, I think that if someone is able to come directly into the public service area, I mean, the, I have several friends who've done that exact same thing, going into private sector employment first to work on getting their debt load reduced before coming into the public sector, but one of the challenges then is you've now, you're, you know, three, four, five years of practice in and when you're going to look to another job, they're looking for a number of things that you may not have experience-wise after being just that initial part in the private sector. One of the benefits about coming to work as a district attorney or a public defender initially and going straight into kind of that public sector job is you get to step into a lot of the roles that uh, people in private practice, at least early on, you don't, you only see the partners doing. You get to be in court. You get to be writing the motions, you're really engaged with the clients, you're getting to interact, and you gain a massive amount of experience as a public sector lawyer right at the beginning that you don't really have the opportunity to necessarily in private practice many times. So in my mind, the, the better way is to come into the public sector role first, be able to build up that experience and, the, and serve um, in kind of those prime years of your, of your law practice. That's a much better path overall.
1: And Brian, so you're you're in the thick of uh, public defense uh, right now. what tell us a little bit more about uh, that role We are familiar with you know whether it's from TV or people who come to our law schools and tell us about the work that they do in the public defender's office uh, facing off with assistant district attorneys in court and uh, the clients you work with what does that work look like and are there any things that you have to combat from uh, day-to-day, uh, from stereotypes to just other stresses that we don't know about and, and don't get on Law & Order episodes?
3: Sure. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories to tell groups who aren't lawyers, that we're we're the ones who have that second part of the Miranda warning you see on Law & Order, where if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you by the state. <laughs> and I think one of the, the challenges that we have as public defenders a lot of times is there's this perception that if you come be a public defender you're going to be stuck somewhere, overworked, underpaid, and never really able to do much of anything, just kind of moving people through the system. But what I've seen across our state, we have over 400 lawyers um, working with us across the state of Georgia. And public defender work is, is an opportunity to provide that effective counsel that the Constitution requires, make sure someone's legal needs are met, but across our state and our offices, we have people who are also able to do real good because they can catch early those substance abuse issues or mental health issues or family or housing dynamics that a lot of times lead people to criminal activity and can try to route those people into programs and support in their community to make a difference there and really hopefully break the cycle and the underlying causes that can lead to these challenges in a community i mean our public defenders are doing great work across the state right now and really meeting a lot of needs that people have i think that's one of the parts that people often don't appreciate about the work is yes there is it's difficult work yes um you got to be on your feet in court and you're representing your clients day in and day out, but you also have the very real opportunity to make a difference in the lives of individuals who have gotten into a very bad situation, but you can help them not only with their legal problem, but also many of the underlying problems that led them to being in your office. And that's that's the greatest opportunity I see for public defenders to do real good in our communities beyond just our representation in court.
2: No, I love that. I love the thought when it comes to public service that there's such this dynamic aspect to being a public defender. But that being said, it's already a career that is kind of notoriously known in at least the law school circuit as being significantly underpaid. And it sounds to me like there's even more work now that you're mentioning taking on, you know, that, you know, maybe child services hat or a drug addiction hat or mental illness hat on top of the actual legal services provided. Would you say that um, the lack of pay equity with other legal careers is a problem that public defenders are facing?
3: Yeah, and that's, I'd say that is, that is one of the biggest issues we have, is there, there is a lot of work to be done, and it's usually not, um, not great pay. One of the things that's positive that's happening in Georgia on the public defense front is the prosecutors and I have worked together and have jointly presented a proposal to the legislature that the, the assistant district attorneys and assistant public defenders be paid on the same pay scale, because they're doing basically the same work, and if someone has equal experience, whether they're in a DA's office or a public defender office, they should be getting the same salary. And so that's one positive development. We're hopeful that um, we'll have some good success with that this next year of hopefully trying to bring pay equity to at least with the district attorney's offices so we're, when you're in the same space, you're getting paid along the way. So that that's one piece. And then I know another big issue that's come up for public defenders generally is the issue of uh, what's been called compassion fatigue, that a lot of times when you're interacting with people who have significant needs on a daily basis, there's a lot of times you're, you're touching that kind of brokenness of the person on a consistent basis, and that has an effect on your mental health and your ability to work through things. So we've been trying to target training and assistance directly for our public defenders along that line so that they can have those kinds of needs met. Um, so as they're working to do good, we also can be taking care of them along the way.
1: Brian, I know you've talked about a lot of the, um, the struggles, but also a lot of the, the blessings of the work that, that you see yourself uh, being part of, and if you could, in just one sentence, tell law students why they might consider becoming public defenders, what would you say?
3: I would say that it's the real opportunity in the law to not just sit in an office, not just you know be looking through documents, not just kind of be a cog in the system but really being able to make a difference in the lives of people in your community. When in my mind when someone stands in a courtroom and they're accused by the government of a crime, no one should be able to tell whether that person is indigent or not based on the quality of representation they receive. So as a public defender, you have the opportunity as a great lawyer to make a difference not only to that person but also to serve the justice system as a whole by making sure that Everyone receives all the protections they're entitled to under the Constitution. One
2: awesome. very long sentence. <laughs> Thank
3: you. Right, Sorry, I think that was I think that was three sentences. <laughs> there
2: were semicolons. We will semicolons.
0: Tell. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
3: Well,
1: I know we've talked a lot about your profession and uh, the work that you do. I wanted to see if we could uh, wrap up with some uh, more personal questions uh, uh, just uh, about you. If we could go back to um, law student Brian Tyson, what are two or three of the biggest tips uh, you would give a younger version of yourself in law school right now that uh, would be nuggets of wisdom that uh, we and our listeners could uh, take to the bank?
3: Sure. The the biggest tip I would give myself is that you only are as good as a lawyer if you have clients. And so what I discovered when I first got into private practice was you have to be able to have clients coming in the door, especially at a smaller or mid-sized firm. And so looking to develop relationships with people outside the legal field, that ultimately can become clients. is a very important part of the law practice, because in the end, the the practice of law is a business, and um, as much fun as it is to talk about the Constitution or theorize about a particular theory of a case, in the end, somebody needs to be paying you to do the work that you're doing. So in private practice, that's what I would say I was the biggest thing that I discovered was the business development side of law is very, very important. And the other thing I would probably give myself as a piece of advice is to get a little bit beyond, I was kind of a, I still am to a large degree, a law nerd. And I love kind of Theorizing about various constitutional theories and all that kind of stuff, but getting out of the theory of law and thinking about how does this affect a client? Because in the end, I'm not going to have to give a client advice. uh, Well, on the one hand, on the other hand, I'm going to have to give a client advice and say this is my recommendation based on the scenario you're facing, of what course of conduct you should take, and that's a that's weighing out what the law says. Then it's also making a recommendation to a client and always understanding that in the end, this isn't going to be just kind of a law review article, but in the end, I'm going to have a client on the other side of this that I'm going to have to make a recommendation to. So those would be the two things I would, I'd probably tell myself looking back to law school.
2: So you're practicing in Georgia, but I know today, especially with the efforts that ABA and the Law Student Division are making with the adoption of the uniform bar exam, there's a lot more mobility for law students. They're given the chance to be able to look in any legal market to practice after they graduate. So why is it that you found yourself in Georgia and what do you love about practicing law in Georgia?
3: Well, I'm here in Georgia because my family's here. um it's where it's where I grew up and uh, kind of where i've where I've been around. so that's that's why I ended up in Georgia, But you're exactly right. Having the opportunity to look at a variety of legal markets is really valuable. I did two years in d c um wh- on working as a policy aide for a congressman there. And one of the things I thought about was, well, I wonder if I want to practice law here, but ultimately decided I wanted to come back home. And for me, practicing in Georgia, is the opportunity to contribute to my state and my family and my community. And so that's ultimately why I'm here, because that's that's where I can make the biggest difference because it's where I'm, I know the most people. But it's important to me, too, that there be an opportunity to look at other states and other avenues. Um, I, I know my brother has traveled around for a lot of different jobs in the in the computer world, and he's not limited by a bar examination of where he can take a job or what he can do. So having that opportunity would be huge uh, for me, but for me, I'd still probably be home here in Georgia.
1: You know, uh, Madison uh, touched on an interesting topic, and you uh, mentioned it, too, about the limits of a, of a bar examination. Do you have any thoughts on the uniform bar exam, uh, that universal option for mobility uh, for law students who, who take a state that offers that UBE exam?
3: Oh, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, we already do the multi-state from a from <laughs> a uh, multiple-choice question as it is. I know the performance test as well. So the essay is generally your major test of state law, but I think what a lot of people discover just on a practical level is you still have to learn the law of whatever state you end up practicing in. It's not what you learn in the, on the bar exam necessarily. It's what you learn in practice. So I think it would be a really valuable tool. I think it would be a great concept for uh, other state bars to look at, to have some uniformity of the bar examination, make it easier to move from state to state. As as more millennial uh, lawyers come on board, we're going to have more people who just have that idea that we're going to want to move around and travel and experience different things, and so I think that would be a very valuable part. It would also help me practically on kind of a a selfish level for the agency, because we have a difficult time a lot of times recruiting lawyers to come to Georgia, because people don't necessarily want to come to the south, they don't want to go to a rural area in Georgia, but if we had, because they have to take the bar, have to go through all these hoops to get there, but if we could offer, hey, you can come and start practicing immediately, get some experience, that'd be very valuable for our recruitment efforts across the country for sure.
2: Well, thank you. This has been a really great interview. I really appreciate you taking your time uh, to join today's show and to talk about uh, public service loan forgiveness, which is obviously a very important program for law students and young lawyers. And uh, we really appreciate you giving us your insights from the practice of in the public defender's office.
0: Oh, well,
3: thank you so much. I appreciate all y'all are doing and appreciate you bringing attention to this issue as well. because it's, it's important to us too. So thank you.
1: Well, it looks like we've run out of time for this segment, but I wanted to thank Mr. Brian P. Tyson, Executive Director of the Georgia Public Defender Council for stopping by to talk about public service loan forgiveness. Besides reaching you on Twitter at BP Tyson, what's the best way to get in contact with you for our listeners?
3: The best way would be just to shoot me an email. Um, I have my email with me pretty much 24-7. It's b tyson B-T-Y-S-O-N, at gapubdef, G-A-P-U-B-D-E-F dot O-R-G.
2: Up next, we have joining us Jonathan Rapping, president and founder of Gideon's Promise, an organization dedicated to training and support of public defenders to help provide greater access to justice for indigent defendants. Gideon's Promise was featured in the award-winning HBO documentary, Gideon's Army, in 2013. Prior to his work with Gideon's Promise, Rapping worked to rebuild New Orleans' public defender office in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and served in the public defender's office's of Georgia and Washington, D.C.
1: In 2014, Rapping was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow, also known as a MacArthur Genius Grant. He is currently a professor at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School and serves as a visiting associate professor of law at Harvard Law School.
2: Welcome, John. Well, thank you for
1: having me. John, uh, we're so excited that you're um, on our show today. Uh, Before we get started uh, with our conversation about public service loan forgiveness, uh, we'd love to know a little bit more about you and Gideon's Promise.
4: Sure, sure. So um, my wife and I started Gideon's Promise back in 2007, after I spent a few years working in the South and sort of seeing criminal justice systems that had come to accept embarrassingly low standards of justice for poor people. I met these young, passionate public defenders. They came into this work right out of law school, wanting to do great work. And within a couple of years, these systems just beat the passion out of them. Uh, And many of them either quit or became resigned to the status quo. And so in 2007, my wife and I founded Gideon's Promise, really to develop a community community of public defenders to drive criminal justice reform in some of the nation's most broken systems.
2: That's great. So what, were you a public defender before you decided to start Gideon's Promise, or what led you into that field?
4: So I started my career as a public defender in Washington, D.C., which is one of the few model public defender offices in the country, and for 10 years I worked there, I was the training director, um, and I you know, was fortunate to be surrounded by amazing public defenders who had the resources and training um, and institutional support to give every client the kind of representation that our Constitution demands. And then in 2004, I was invited to join the effort to build a statewide public defender system in Georgia. And I became the training director uh, of Georgia's new statewide system. Um, Two years later, after Hurricane Katrina, I went to New Orleans to help with the effort to rebuild that public defender office. I did a little work in Alabama, in Mississippi. And that's where I really started to see how public defense in most of the country works. And it was nothing like what I experienced in D.C. And that was really what led me to apply for a grant through the Soros Foundation Foundation to ultimately begin this project that has become Gideon's Promise.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, what what turned into Gideon's Promise. And specifically, uh, we know that Gideon's Promise was was highlighted, and you were featured in the HBO documentary Gideon's Army. Uh, How did they get a hold of you?
4: Well, interestingly, we were a grantee of the Ford Foundation at the time, and our program officer uh, knew a filmmaker, who was looking for a project and, um, and our program officer connected the filmmaker to us and the filmmaker, Dawn Porter came down to Birmingham to check out what we were doing with public defenders. And she fell in love, uh, and started filming. Uh, and as she started filming and, and capturing footage of these amazing heroic lawyers working against an incredible odds to just make sure poor people had justice. She started showing those clips around. um, And the folks at HBO, along with many others, were just blown away. And so ultimately, HBO agreed to, to purchase the film.
2: That's great. So when you decided to go to law school, we'll take it a step back, Um, in your career, I guess, the fledgling lawyer, or even earlier to that, when you're deciding to go to law school, did you already kind of feel this calling to go into public defense work? Or was that something that happened during your um, time at law school through your classes?
4: Right. Well, so interestingly, I grew up uh, in a household um, with a very politically active mother, So I was taught at a very young age to be very socially conscious. Uh, We had friends who were defense lawyers, and this was in the early 70s, doing really good work representing people who were involved in good causes. And, And I knew I wanted to be a defense lawyer. I didn't know I wanted to be a public defender because, like so many people in America, I had this image of public defenders as sort of overworked and bumbling and not caring, but I knew I wanted to be a defense lawyer. And then I went to college. And after four years of college, people convinced me that if I went to law school, I would take on incredible debt, and I would be pressured to take a job to pay off my debt um, that I didn't like. And it scared me away from law school. And so I spent four years doing something else, two years working, in the field of economics, two years getting a master's degree. and After those four years, I realized I wasn't going to be happy unless I was a defense lawyer. And so I sucked it up and went to law school. It wasn't until my first summer, the summer after my 1L year, that I did an internship at the D.C. Public Defender Service that I first met public defenders. And I saw these young, passionate, amazing people. And I said, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be when I get out of law school. So it was really the first summer. That, uh, that that really turned me on to public
1: defense that's so interesting that you mentioned that uh, one of the, the biggest obstacles to you attending law school was was the fear of, of debt and, and student loan debt as you know has has steadily increased over the years uh, despite job opportunities for law students and remaining low and uh, stagnant uh, across much of the country so as a professor have you noticed that this debt burden is affecting students' interest in or ability to choose to go into uh, the legal field of specifically public interest work after they graduate?
4: Uh, I mean, absolutely. I I, I meet law students every day who came to law school really wanting to do social justice work, wanting to address uh, what has become known as the justice gap, the fact that that most people in this country cannot afford to hire a lawyer. And most of the most important issues that we all face every day are addressed in our legal system. And without a lawyer to access the legal system, you simply can't get justice. So, I I mean, all of these young lawyers who or young young law students who came to law school wanting to help fill that justice gap, um, but by their third year, they are terrified. Um, of the debt that they've taken on. And the only thing they're thinking about is, is getting a job that can help them pay off that debt. They sort of delude themselves into thinking, I'll just work five or 10 years and chip away at this debt and then I'll go do good work. But the fact of the matter is the kind of debt that we are saddling graduates with, it doesn't get paid off in five or 10 years. It's a lifetime commitment to paying off these loans. And most of these students never get to pursue the work they came to law school
2: for. Yeah, so this actually goes into a question I have. You may have already started to answer in in your last comment, but I I find it really interesting that that you were discouraged by some to go to law school because of this issue. You know, the economy, I, I don't know the exact year you graduated from law school, but I'm assuming it wasn't what the current economy legal economy is for a lot of law students right now right now you know the economy is very difficult especially in in specific some specific cities and law graduates who are very qualified have trouble finding employment that will pay them enough to be able to pay their debts and live. So I know many of my uh, cohort and I know young many young attorneys who have taken that approach you just mentioned. I'll go work in corporate where I can get a bigger salary, I'll pay my loans down more quickly, and then I can go do the public interest work that I'm actually passionate about and interested in. So your your advice would be to discourage people from taking that route.
4: Well, you know, I've met many law school graduates who take that route. They're well-intentioned. But the fact of the matter is, it is really hard once you, you know, once you get 10 years into a career where you're making $150,000 a year, and now you have a family, and now you have other obligations, maybe a home, to say, you know, now I'm going to go start my career as a first-year public interest lawyer making $40,000 40000 or $50,000. It's just very hard to do. So yes, I actually think that as well-intentioned as our law graduates are, if you do not start in public interest work or at least get there within the first couple of years while you're still a young lawyer, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to make that shift. There are exceptions, but
1: that's not the rule. So, Professor Rapping, many law students, many of our colleagues, uh, went to law school in the context of this enormous mounting uh, specter of debt, uh, but a lot of them have uh, gone with the um, expectation or the promise of programs like the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program um, that I'm sure you're familiar with uh, and that is being uh, debated in the next uh, education bill uh, in Congress. And um, although that the House and, and the presidents budgets have um, recommended to eliminate or drastically cut the program, the, the Senate hasn't weighed in yet. If uh, you could get in a room with uh, a couple of your state senators or uh, senators that you think would uh, bend their ear to you, is there something in particular that, that you would say to them? Well,
4: you know, it's interesting. As I was preparing to talk to you guys I I reached out to some of our public defenders because we have brought probably about 350 young recent law graduate public defenders into Gideon's Promise since we started in 2007. So we have quite a community of young public defenders. And I reached out and I I said, you know, I want to ask you, to what extent would not having public service loan forgiveness impact your ability to do this work? And to a person, they responded and said it would literally force me to have to leave my passion of being a public defender. I simply couldn't make ends meet. I mean we have some of these some of these public defenders and public interest lawyers are barely making more than the cost of their student loans at times um they simply are drowning so if if I were talking to of these representatives, some of these senators, I would try to find a diplomatic way to say that I believe the discussion to do away with loan forgiveness is really just a reflection of how, as a society, we truly don't value justice for poor people. Because poor people will not get justice unless we find a way to incentivize law school graduates who care to be able to do this work. And I don't mean incentivize them in the sense that they need to make a lot of money. Our public defenders without loan forgiveness would have to choose between doing the work they love and eating, doing the work they love and paying their rent. If we can't even allow young lawyers to make a decent living and do the work that they love and that is so important if we believe in equal justice, we're really not living up to the promise of our democracy.
2: Yeah, so some of the critics of the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, though I even hesitate to say that they're critics of the program itself, but advocates for capping or cutting the program, you know, the the argument that is presented is, of course, we have great budgetary issues in the country. So without putting too much of a political hat on our heads, you know, public service loan forgiveness is also for anyone who goes into public work. So public sector work, you work for the government. So that's not necessarily um, legal work. And it's it's also not necessarily uh, public defense. So it's interesting because I think everyone can be on board with the idea I I like to believe everybody would that we need public defenders and, you know, they obviously play an integral constitutional role in our justice system. But when we look outside to everyone who potentially qualifies for this program, that's when it starts becoming a very much larger budget item, if you will, in the total budget of the country. So I guess the question, maybe if you'll indulge me, is, you know, if we're talking to our senators, they're stuck with this decision of this really great program, PSLF, or oh, oh. what do you cut, right? Is there a way that we could, and this is something that, you know, President Obama's budget also recommended as a, a possibility, is capping. The program. So instead of eliminating it entirely, we would try to constrain the amount it would cost our taxpayers, if you will, by putting a limit on how much debt we would be willing to forgive. Do you see a cap of that nature being equally as detrimental to law students being able to take these these jobs as public defenders or even district attorneys and other um, public sector legal jobs?
4: I don't know if I'd say equally as detrimental in the sense that a cap wouldn't eliminate all relief, but it would el- eliminate some of the relief. But I, I certainly think that there are people in the legal field, public defenders, I'm sure district attorneys, and I'm sure people outside of the legal field who as they are deciding whether they can afford to do this really important work, they've made the decision to do it, and they're right on the margin. Uh, if it costs them any more to do this work, they probably wouldn't do it. Capping would lose those people. So there would be a cost. But, but I think that we're missing when we talk about the budget implications of funding loan forgiveness versus not funding loan forgiveness, is that loan forgiveness is helping people address the most critical needs of our most marginalized populations. It's helping people get educational services and health care. It's helping people get homes and public benefits. And the problem is when people don't have these services and they're really struggling Those problems become bigger problems down the road when people don't get preventive health, preventative health health care on the front end. We have to pay for much more expensive services on the back end when people are rendered homeless because they don't have people to advocate for them in the housing arena. um, They may turn to stealing loaves of bread, but whatever they do. We end up having to pay for the problems down the road. What loan forgiveness does is it allows professionals, legal and otherwise, to help people get on their feet, become productive members of society, and avoid huge costs down the road. So to me, loan forgiveness is a cost saver unless we're really short-sighted.
1: Professor Rapping, you you talked a lot about uh, the justice gap and loan forgiveness is uh, as you described it, um, maybe is something that helps narrow that gap. Uh, do you think there's another crisis uh, besides this loan uh, debt issue that are facing law students right now?
4: Well, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're getting at, but, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I share this with uh, first-year law students whenever I do orientation, is by an unnamed law student. I read it in an article by Professor William Quigley, and it says, the first thing I lost in law school is the reason why I came. And I share that with first-year law students, and I say, as passionate as you may be today, you're about to enter a first-year curriculum where you will learn that the law is reduced to rules and doctrine, that, that the law is something that is discerned through black letters on a white page and you will quickly forget there are people behind those cases. And I think law school is the beginning of a process of taking the human element out of the law. And then you become a lawyer. I, I just got a call from a young lawyer who's a mentee of mine. And she went into family law because she really wanted to help families that were in crisis. And she had someone walk in for a consultation and they only had $500. And she said, You know, I can give you two hours worth of my time for $500, uh, but it wouldn't get you anywhere. You're better off simply not paying me at all. I, the $500 won't get you anywhere. And her, her boss, the partner, told her, Don't do that. Take the $500 and then later help the person figure out how to pay more. Maybe they can mortgage their home. And so the the profession in many ways has lost sight of the need to address human needs. We're slaves to the billable hour. We are slaves to values inconsistent with humanity and justice. And I think that is a crisis facing law students across this country. Most third year law students wake up and realize I am going into a profession where I can't help people. I am afraid that I'm gonna lose my soul. We've gotta fix that as a profession. And I think that loan forgiveness is one level we have to help continue law students along a path towards doing really good, passionate, noble, purposeful work.
2: So speaking of law students, if you could go back in time to a, a young Jonathan Raffing, 1L law student, there, be great. Is, there, yeah. <laughs> is there any advice now, looking looking back and what you've learned over your career, that you would give yourself or, or give to law students in that position generally?
4: Well, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think I was fortunate because in my first year of law school, uh, as I said, I went to the D.C. Public Defender Service, and I got connected to this amazing community of people who kept me focused on doing work that is purposeful and meaningful. Had I not had that summer experience, I'm not sure that I wouldn't have become lost. And so the advice I would give to any law student is don't lose sight of your purpose. There is nothing more important in life than doing purposeful work. It reminds me of another quote. I'm a big fan of quotes, but another quote that a a colleague of mine shared with me once that he got from his grandfather who was a minister is every day you write your epitaph. And I think that is such a, a profound quote that, that every day of your life, you are helping to define the legacy you leave, what you contributed to this world. And you can't waste a single day. And I would say to law students Make sure you find a way to spend every day writing a chapter that you will be proud of.
1: Wow, that's really powerful, Professor Rapping. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, one last question that that I want to ask is as you live your life that way, um, what would you say might be your your life's motto, or uh, how would you put your calling into words?
4: Well, you know, I think my calling now has been to. Surround myself with a community of people who share a vision for justice and, and share a passion for justice. And so, uh, while I started my career as a public defender trying to do good work for individuals, I think my career—I've been lucky—and my career has evolved to to being part of a community that is collectively not only helping individuals but collectively infusing the system, the criminal justice system, with values that have been missing. So I think surrounding myself with individuals who share a passion for justice and who are collectively committed to achieving it uh, has been what what sort of is most meaningful to me in my career.
2: Well, thank you, Professor Rapping. I really appreciate all that you've had to to say and the insights that you've provided us and our listeners today. It's really been a great conversation. So thank you again for joining us.
1: So thank you. It's really been an honor to, to spend the morning with you. Thank you so much, Professor Rapping.
2: So besides Twitter at J Rapping or Gideon's Promise, Twitter at Gideon's Promise, what's the best way for students to get in contact with you?
4: We uh, coincidentally launched a new website last week, www.gideonspromise.org I can be reached through that website you can learn more about our work through that website and I can also be reached at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School where I direct an innovative program called the Honors Program in Criminal Justice that is really geared towards helping to keep students committed to criminal justice work on the right track and ready to go out and practice in that arena.
2: That's great. So if any of our listeners are specifically interested in getting involved with Gideon's Promise, you direct them to that website as well.
4: Go to the website, and you can reach me personally at john, J-O-N, at gideonspromise.org. But through that website, you can reach any member of our team, and the website will let you know who to reach out to for for what purpose. And let me say one last thing. We also have a law clerk program. A summer law clerk program where law students who want to think about not only being public defenders, but being public defenders in the South in some really challenging environments and joining this community can join our summer law clerk program and spend the summer seeing what this work is about. Information about that is also on our website.
2: That's great. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. All right. Thank you, Professor Rapping. Blessings upon uh, your work in our community, and thank you for sharing your insights with uh, law students across the country. All right. Keep up the good work, and you'll have a great day. Thank you, sir.
2: This has been another great edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast.
1: We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes, and once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review it as well.
2: You can also tweet to us at ABALSD. And use the hashtag LawStudentPodcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte. And I'm at Madison Burke, signing off.
1: Thanks for listening. Work
0: hard, play smart, and see you next time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBard.org forward slash lawstudent.